This is They Create Worlds, episode 44, Founding Digigi to Atari. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will delve where we have delved before, but deeper, further, more epic. Hey, it's at least three parts. That's right. We will be unfolding the massive history of Atari and its original form, Atari Incorporated, existing from June 1972 through July 1984, with a bit of background on Syzygy and all that before that. And even with three episodes, there's no way we'll be able to cover any everything. It's a big topic, but we're going to go in-depth on the rise and fall of this great video game company. Now, for those of us who have been listening for a while, we've tackled Atari a lot. We've had the history of the Atari brand and a lot of other episodes, especially during the crash, our other big three-parter. There was a lot of Atari in that, too. So... How is this going to be really different than all the stuff that's come before? Well, of course, the Atari brand episode was a broad episode covering the entire history of the brand, including the Tremel company, the arcade company, Atari Games, that was a successor, and then also the French company, Infogrom, that ended up buying it. Obviously, we did spend some time in the beginning of that episode going over the origins of Atari, but then we were casting a much wider net and going a lot further forward in history. There have been other things where we've talked about various aspects. The Crash episode, you can't talk about the Crash without talking about Atari some, of course. The Nutting Associates episode, where we talked about, obviously, Nolan Bushnell's Start With Them in Computer Space. What we're going to do this time is really take a close-in examination at all the stages of the original Atari, how it started as this small company of two people in a little roll-up facility on Scott Boulevard, went from there to being a $2 billion company briefly holding the record for the fastest-growing company in American history in terms of value, and then dig into that fall. Obviously, we've talked about some of the issues related to that fall in our crash episode, but not all, because, again, we were talking about the crash very broadly, which involved other actors, not just Atari. So this is our chance to really hone in on this Atari story based primarily on many of the interviews that I've done myself with people like founder Nolan Bushnell, CEO Ray Kassar, Consumer Division President Michael Moon, Consumer Division Sales and Marketing VP Bill Grubb, CFO Dennis Groth, and many more. So there should be some stuff in here that is not as widely reported or as widely known. Oh, definitely. From what you've told me privately in our conversations outside of the podcast, you've learned quite a bit especially from Ray Cathar and others from your interviews that have really started to shed some light onto the differences between Atari and Warner that eventually purchased them. Absolutely. And also, I have been making this concerted effort to talk with executives and sales and marketing people at Atari because the story of Atari is usually told from the perspective of the engineers and the programmers. 
in any high-tech company, and this is not just Atari, this is any high-tech company, any Silicon Valley company, there is always this tension between engineering and marketing. Engineering always thinks they can make the biggest, bestest, brightest things. Then if they're not allowed to make the biggest, bestest, brightest things, or if they make those things and then they don't sell so well, they automatically blame marketing, the people that were supposed to be selling this stuff. Because the history of Atari is usually framed through the eyes of the programmers and engineers, the story that emerges is a very anti-marketing story. The classic narrative of Atari is the engineers were brilliant and made some great product, and then marketing screwed the whole thing up. And of course, we're not going to let marketing off the hook. We'll talk about the things on the executive side that could have been done better. Because whenever a company like this that's growing, growing, growing suddenly collapses, there's plenty of blame to go around. So obviously, we're not going to let marketing off the hook at all. But we want to try to take a more balanced look at the company, see what engineering was doing right and what engineering was doing wrong, see what marketing was doing right and what marketing was doing wrong, see the ways that Ray Kassar was a bad leader of the company, but also see some of the ways that Ray Kassar was a good leader of the company, because nothing is ever that simple, nothing is ever so black and white as us versus them, we were great and they were not great kind of narrative. Which, while interesting from the yay, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys standpoint, just like life, the nuances and shades of how things are is much more difficult to understand or really appreciate. Exactly. And I'm sure we won't get it all right either, being such a complicated issue. But I can at least bring in some of the perspective of some of the executives that I've talked to in sales and marketing and finance to counterbalance and enhance the story that has been told by the programmers and engineers, largely to other people. I've interviewed a couple of people on the technical side, but I have really focused on interviewing these people on the sales and marketing side only because the stories of the engineers and programmers have been told so many times already, and they've been interviewed so many times already that I didn't feel I had as much to add to the conversation if I were to contact them and interview them directly. That makes sense. All right. So we've established why we're doing this and this epic. Let's start, as always, from the beginning. Syzygy, pre-Atari, the germination point. So Atari really is Nolan Bushnell. There's a movement these days to, I think, almost downplay Nolan Bushnell. And there are some reasons for that. There is no doubt that Nolan Bushnell, being the showman and expert self-promoter that he is, has at times, sometimes deliberately, probably sometimes honestly not deliberately, has enhanced his own role in the company at the expense of other people that helped him get it started. As a result of that, as other people's stories started coming to the fore, most notably his co-founder at Syzygy and Atari, Ted Dabney, there was an instinct, I think, to really tell that story in depth and in some detail, just because it's a story that had never been told before. And because of that, Nolan kept getting pushed to the side. Well, Nolan didn't really do this. Well, Nolan really didn't do that. Well, Nolan wasn't much of an engineer. Well, Nolan wasn't much of a CEO. A lot of that is true, but that's immaterial because Atari is still Nolan Bushnell. And the reason for that is that Nolan Bushnell had something that nobody else did. He was a great enthusiast of games and of coin-operated games. 
who had some experience with that coin-operated market and had a vision and boundless enthusiasm for moving this industry, this coin-operated industry, into a new direction through the power of computer games. Without Nolan Bushnell, there's no Atari. Ted Dabney was a perfectly fine engineer, but that engineer could have been any perfectly fine engineer. Person B could have been anybody with a basic level, well, not a basic level, but with a decent level is what I mean to say, of engineering ability. Interchangeable spot. It's not like Jobs and Waz, where Waz really was such an engineering genius that you doubt that Apple would have succeeded nearly as well with its early products if Waz hadn't been the one building them. But Waz, of course, didn't care one whit about selling it. He'd have given away his designs for free. Jobs was the one with the vision to see that the computer was a valuable commodity that they could sell. It's an equal partnership where both sides were equally necessary. In Atari, the key figure really was Nolan Bushnell. And I think it's important not to forget that, even as we strive to tell the stories of people like Ted Dabney that have never been told before. I think it's interesting. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, who we've brought up a few times, he's interviewed a couple of Ampex employees, which is where Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney worked together before founding Syzygy. He also interviewed a couple of early Atari employees that haven't really been interviewed by other people, like Ted Olson, one of the early comptrollers, and uh, Satish Bhutani, who was a marketing guy. These are people that knew, or theoretically should have known, both Nolan and Ted. Also, he's interviewed nutting people like Rod Guyman. Everybody remembers Nolan. Nolan is a figure. He's that a personality. People, he is a personality. He's very tall, over six feet, and was very lanky. So he was just... And he, his facial features, he, he looked odd when he was younger. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I just mean that his, with his pronounced features the way they were and his tallness and his lankiness and his just completely unbridled enthusiasm. He stood out in a crowd. He's someone who, you meet him, he sticks in your mind. There's a lot of times when you meet people, they fade into existence. They fade out of existence and you go, that's a person. However, there are, and you can probably think of these people in your life, people who have some sort of unique feature about themselves who are just charismatic, have some sort of projection to them. We have friends who actually exhibit some of these features. Absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, you, you don't forget them. That's right. Very few of these people remember Ted Dabney. I mean, they might recognize the name or this and that, but if you ask them what was Ted Dabney doing, it's like, well... Yeah, I guess he was around, but I don't really remember what he was doing. And that's, again, that's not to insult Ted Dabney. It's just that he was not a singular individual. He was a very competent engineer. He had had a bit of a troubled youth. He barely graduated high school. He was kind of aimless. He didn't know what he wanted to be doing with himself. But he did discover that he did have a strong capability with math and a strong capability with geometry. So he tried out as a surveyor for a while, and that just wasn't working very well for him, basically because it was a seasonal profession. So finding steady work as a surveyor was a difficult thing. So he ended up joining the military, the United States Marine Corps, and that's where he got his electronics training. 
and uh, became proficient with electronics. And then once he got out of the Marines, he worked for a couple of companies very briefly before ending up at Ampex in their military products division. Ampex is a company that's not very well known today, but it was one of the key electronics companies of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They were the pioneers in the United States of magnetic tape recording. They actually started out as a motor manufacturer. They were founded as a manufacturer of small motors during World War II. The founder was a guy named Alexander M. Pointyadov, a Russian. The company name came from his initials, AMP, and then EX stood for excellence. That's where he got that from. So the company was called Ampex. They knew they wouldn't be able to stay in the motor business after the war because smaller they were a smaller company, and the larger companies that were transitioning back from wartime manufacturing were going to be able to run them right out of that business. It was fine in the war because everybody needed so much of everything, but now it was not going to be. And so they got in to this magnetic tape recording thing, which had been a German invention right before the war, but they had kept it secret. The Nazis had kept it secret from the rest of the world because it was such a useful technology because this was the first time really that you could do a recording that sounded like it was being done live. Electronic recording before that was not nearly that good. The quality was much, much, much poorer than something going live over the air. But now with magnetic tape recording, it was, you couldn't tell the difference really. And plus you could make copies and those copies would not deteriorate. From the original. Obviously, magnetic media eventually deteriorates, but the copy was just as good as the original when it came to magnetic tape. So they got in with a, a guy, a military guy that had brought the technology back from Europe, and they released the first magnetic tape recorder in the United States. That became a really, really big deal. This is what finally allowed radio shows to be tape delayed. Radio shows back then used to be live. You could not record a performance in advance because the quality was so poor that people wouldn't want to listen to it. This allowed for tape delaying of shows, which was a huge, huge thing, especially since it meant that you didn't have to do a live show for the East Coast and a live show for the West Coast. You could just do a live show on the East Coast and then tape that and have the tape recording run on the West Coast three hours later or whatever. They got big on the back of recording technology and magnetic tape technology, and they also then released the first videotape recorder as well, which was just so revolutionary for television because it was so much cheaper than film without sacrificing very much quality. So they were big in that, and then they expanded into all sorts of other areas, uh, but always kind of primarily focusing on this recording stuff. For instance, at the Military Products Division, what Ted Dabney was working on was converting U2 spy plane footage that was being captured on film. That was one of his big jobs. So Ampix was one of the really big companies in what at this point had still not been named Silicon Valley. That, that name didn't come into common use until after 1971. We're talking about the 1960s here. But those technology companies were already starting to appear in the area. So Dabney was a competent enough engineer. There's nothing wrong with his engineering skill. But he's the kind of individual that's just, I'm happy doing whatever comes my way. You have me working on this project, fine, I'll work on this project. You have me working on that project, I'll work on that project. He's not a visionary. He's not looking for anything new or different or exciting. 
which is why, while he was important to the founding of Syzygy and the founding of Atari, he was not crucial. He's not quite like John Carmack. Right. It could have been another engineer that did it. Exactly. So that brings us back to Nolan Bushnell. Nolan Bushnell grew up in Utah. His family was Mormon. I don't know when he left the church, but he did. He's, he's not a Mormon himself. His parents were not particularly technical people. His father was a cement contractor. His mother was a teacher and a librarian. But Nolan did become enthused with electronics at an early age, and he became a ham radio operator at a very early age. The period right after World War II was kind of the first period where you kind of had more widespread adoption of, of electronics enthusiasm. Now, there had been, there'd been radio people, people fascinated with building their own crystal radio sets, even going back into the 20s and whatnot. But World War II was a period when electronic technology advanced quite a bit, and it was also a period when a lot of electronic stuff was built for the war effort that was then useless and discarded after the war effort. So you had a lot of surplus electronics out there on the market in the late 40s and early 1950s, which kind of fueled a new wave of enthusiasts in electronics. And if you're going to learn and teach yourself on your own, what better way than the hardened electronics of the U.S. military? Precisely. So there were a lot of military bases in the Clearfield area, Clearfield, Utah, where Nolan lived. So there was a lot of surplus around. And he also, uh, through a neighbor, got into the ham radio thing very young. He was a ham radio operator at about 11 or 12 years old. He kind of cooled off on electronics a little bit when he got to high school. If there's one thing about Nolan, Al Alcorn <laughs> once said of Nolan, Al Alcorn being a, an important engineer at Atari, that he had the attention span of a golden retriever. He didn't mean this necessarily as an insult. They're friends. Nolan and Al are friends. He wasn't being mean. but Nolan doesn't focus on one thing and just focus, focus, focus. He is the type of guy that thinks that everything around him is neat, and he's just going to ping pong between all of these different things that, that look so neat to him. So he was widely interested. He was interested in philosophy. He was interested in economics. He was interested in engineering. He was interested in, in sports, uh, in skiing and in basketball. He was never very good at basketball, but he had a wide variety of interests. He wasn't just this, like, closet nerd locked in his basement doing electronics, which is why Nolan was not the world's most accomplished engineer. That's not really where his skill set was. His skill set was in having vision, having enthusiasm, and knowing who around him had abilities that he did not have and hiring them in or collaborating with them in order to put out a product. And as we'll see as we go through the Atari story, that's really Nolan's contributions more than anything else. But without those contributions, you don't have the rest of it. It sounds to me because he was able to have his hands in so many different fields, that gave him a really good broad knowledge that then lets him relate to people in a way that your average person does not. Think of when you try to relate to a computer person. They're nerdy, they got interests that you might not have interest in, but Nolan would be, oh, yeah, I heard about whatever, and can carry on a conversation, and because 
he shows interest in what they're doing, they like inherently like him. And thus, that's why he makes such a good executive. He can also talk to people in engineering. He can talk to people in marketing because he has an interest in economics and talk about, oh, here's how the latest market trend's going. Here's how whatever algorithm they use in order to sort out their financial data for the day. Sure. Really, because of his wide interest, I think that is what makes him such a good leader and CEO for Atari. Exactly. Uh, We don't want to go too far down that path, though, because even though he had broad interests and could probably hold conversations with all of these type of people, just as you said, he's not a Renaissance man where he's actually adept at most of this stuff. He is a great CEO because the CEO is the outward-facing person that sets the vision of the company. He's not a good manager. Details and day-to-day things bore him. Routine bores him. He wants to always be searching that next horizon. While he's an okay engineer, he's not a great engineer. And while he may be interested in economics and all of that stuff, he's not a marketing whiz, and he's not an economics whiz. So it's still the vision and enthusiasm that he brings primarily to the field. But it is, like you say, it was important having someone like that as the CEO of Atari, as opposed to, say, the president of Atari, because he could walk in all of these different worlds. He could get people across all of these different areas energized and enthused and behind the mission and unify the company in a way that few executives could have done. So in that sense, it was very important. Uh, One of the people I talked to, a fellow named Malcolm Kuhn, was the original director of sales for the consumer division when they were just getting started in that stuff in the mid-1970s. He described Nolan as the spiritual leader of the company. He described him as the guy that they would all jump off a cliff with because they knew that Nolan, or at least the people that Nolan was working with, had a plan for what came next once they jumped off the cliff. I mean, he inspired that kind of loyalty. Gene Lipkin, who was the president of the coin-op division, when I asked him what did Nolan bring to the company, what was the main thing he brought, Gene Lipkin said, vision. He was the guy that saw them, Nolan was. Nolan was the guy that saw Atari as a billion-dollar company when everyone else, even everyone else within the company itself, thought it was nuts to see Atari as a billion-dollar company. That is what Nolan Bushnell brought to the venture, that and his love of games. He was an avid game player of all types going back to childhood, and he adored pinball. I talked to one of his fraternity brothers at the University of Utah. He just described how Nolan was always so into playing pinball whenever he could, and that at one of their fraternity homecoming events, he even turned the frat house into this giant pinball machine. He took a big ramp that he fashioned and put it kind of on the main staircase, and then had a soccer ball that was launched down that ramp, and... The way this fraternity house was apparently structured is there were a lot of these little alcoves off of the main space. So there were a lot of these little areas for a ball to bounce into. And the idea was that whichever alcove this soccer ball ended up in, that alcove would be lit up. And then there'd be a person, a fraternity brother or someone sitting there who was supposed to then stand up and say some words of wisdom of some kind. He was supposed to say something profound. And that was, you know, it was just a fun game kind of thing. Of course, as uh, the fraternity brother, uh, Randall Willie, described it, 
uh, he said all of those locations ended up being staffed by drunk fraternity brothers. And so the wisdom that was coming out of their mouths maybe wasn't the, uh, the wisest in those moments. And he said that the, the alumni that were back for homecoming weren't necessarily enthused by that part of it. But the point is, there's Nolan's love of games, love of coin-operated games, and his creativity all manifest in this one thing that he decided to do this one year at the fraternity house at the University of Utah. And he goes on to take that kind of drive and initiative to Atari. Exactly. To Syzygy and then to Atari. Nolan Bushnell worked a lot of jobs to put himself through college, and he was in college a long time because he kept switching his majors. He started at Utah State University in 1961. He graduated from the University of Utah in December 1968. Seven years. Yeah, he was in college a long time because he kept switching his major. He started out as an engineering major because he still did have that interest, and he had a part-time job as an appliance delivery man and uh, light appliance and TV repair, a very basic appliance and TV repair, when he was in high school. So he still had that interest, even though it had cooled a little bit. And so he started out in engineering. He decided that that was too much work. Nolan is a free spirit. Nolan wanted to party with his fraternity brothers. And <laughs> engineering did not leave him enough time to party with his fraternity brothers. And I got that straight from Nolan. So I'm not casting aspersions about a partying lifestyle or something. This is straight from Nolan. <laughs> uh, so he switched to business. He switched to economics because he didn't want to do the engineering thing. He was always working odd jobs because his father actually died when he was 15 years old, he had a heart attack out on the job. He was having to put himself, I think, primarily through college and also you know, support his family a little bit too. So he had to work. And he took on a variety of odd jobs. But the one job that ended up really working for him and really sticking with was at the Lagoon Amusement Park in Salt Lake City. It's a big uh, amusement park. He started on the Midway. He started with like a, a milk bottle ball toss game. Then he moved from that. He cycled through a bunch of other games. He was really good at it because we've talked about already his outsized personality. He was a perfect carnival barker. He was a perfect promoter. You know, step right up, step right up. Win a nice stuffed animal for your sweetheart there. Just, you know, three throws for a quarter or whatever. You know, I mean, he could just, he could convince people to come over and try his booth. And he did a guess your weight booth for a while too. So he was good at, you know, doing that whole guess your weight kind of thing. Uh, guess your age kind of thing. You know, just a really good carnival barker. He ended up getting promoted into a supervisor job in the arcade. The amusement park had an arcade, as many amusement parks did and still do today. After working on the Midway for a while, he got a job uh, being in charge with another employee, so he was kind of co-in charge of the arcade there. So he's responsible for maintaining all the pinball machines and all the electromechanical games that they have. So that's a perfect situation for him. He's learning the coin-op business a little bit. It's not quite the same as having a, an operation or a route out in the real world because you're just in this one amusement park location. But he's starting to understand the economics of this coin business a little bit. And he likes pinball. So he's kind of seeing, it's starting to turn in his mind. It's like, what kind of things can I do with this later? And it's because he was at Lagoon that he ended up switching schools. Uh, Utah State University was a, like an hour and a half commute from Lagoon outside Salt Lake. So he transferred to the University of Utah because that was closer to Lagoon. And so he didn't have that horrible commute for his job. 
It was part-time during the school year, full-time during the summer when he was off school. So he's got that going for him. He's learning engineering, and he's being exposed to computers because there is a computer center at Utah, and he takes a focus in electrical engineering and computer design. Computer science at this time is a very, very nascent field. Computers are still mostly an electrical engineering thing, not a computer science thing. Probably not even a computer engineering degree either. No. When I went through college, the only options I had were computer engineering and computer science. You don't have the plethora of computer-related fields you do today. Right. And what Nolan Bushnell did is he took an electrical engineering degree with a focus in computer design. Because there are a lot of areas of electrical engineering you can focus in power, which is how electrical engineering really started, was managing power grids. You could focus in circuits. You could focus in a lot of different areas. And he took a focus in computer design. He took a couple of programming courses, intro programming courses, but it wasn't the software, it wasn't the programming that he was getting into. It was the hardware that he was interested in. So he gets through school, graduates in 1968, and he wants to get the heck out of Utah. Utah's a bit too straight-laced for an irrepressible spirit like Nolan Bushnell. He doesn't really fit the kind of clean-cut Mormon mold. He's a bit of a free spirit, almost a bit of a hippie, though still a responsible adult. He's not going off and living in a commune and refusing to shower like Steve Jobs or something like that. But kind of the hippie spirit of peace, love, and understanding is certainly something that he's into. And he's certainly into marijuana and that kind of thing. I don't know exactly when he started. To quote Brian from Family Guy, he lost the values, but he kept the weed. <laughs> That's right. He wants to go to California. And what he'd really like to do is work for a company like Walt Disney. He's really fascinated with the showmanship there and with the animatronics, things like the Tiki Lounge or the Hall of Presidents, kind of the early animatronic work that Walt Disney was doing in their theme parks. And he'd really love to be an Imagineer, which is what Disney calls their theme park engineers that are building their rides and building their attractions, because it's combining engineering and showmanship and creativity in a way that appeals to Nolan Bushnell, which should comes no surprise based on what we've already said about him so far in this episode. Well, Disney doesn't really hire fresh engineers, and especially not a middling engineer like Nolan. And he did, like I said, he graduated in electrical engineering. I should back up. He had gone into the business, and then he got married in 1966 while he was still in school. After that, he decided that he needed to get a little more serious, and so he toned down the partying and switched back to engineering and then got his engineering degree instead of a business or an economics degree. So he couldn't be an Imagineer. He was only a middling engineer and a green engineer, and Disney was never going to hire him. So he went to Silicon Valley over, like, Thanksgiving or something like that before he graduated in December and peppered his resume around and got the most enthusiastic response from Ampex. Ampex was, hiring, uh, was offering the most money and seemed the most enthused with him. So he joined Ampex. Ampex stuck him in an office with an engineer named Ted Dabney. Which is how the two of them met. That's right. So at this point, both of them are in a division called Videophile. Videophile is incredibly important to the beginning of Atari because almost every single important engineer in the early days of Atari that built all their early most important games came out of Videophile. It was all people they knew in Videophile. The Videophile system 
was a document storage and retrieval system that was meant to replace paper filing. But in the days before computers, the way they were doing it in digitization was they would film documents. All the documents would be on a roll of film strip. This is microfilm. Yeah, kind of. Except that it's all tied in. Each one of these individual documents has some kind of marker that can be read by a machine. And so you can use a terminal that is dialed into this video file system to pull up an individual file. You can put in the parameters of the document you're looking for using the terminal, and it'll actually cycle through your film and bring up your document. So instead of your typical envisioning of microfilm, where you sit there at a terminal, go page one, page two, page three, page four, well, next roll. You sit down at the terminal and go, I want these keywords, almost like a search engine. Mm -hmm. Then the system goes up, okay, that can be found on roll seven, section 22. Please load roll seven. You load roll seven, and then it goes to section 22. Here's your item. Exactly. And you see, it was actually using microwave links, the terminals could actually be remote. So you had your big central repository of all of these documents on magnetic tape. I called it film earlier, but really it's magnetic tape because it's Ampex. It's the tape company. <laughs> True. Then the image of that particular piece of magnetic tape could be beamed via microwave link to your terminal. So you didn't have to be right there where the file was. You could have a video file terminal in your office that was dialed in. So it's like the kind of mainframe terminal situation that you would think of in a computer and recalling a document that way, except it's not an electronic digital computer that's doing all of this. It's this analog system using magnetic tape. It's proto-computer. It's sort of like computers before computers. Right. And this stuff obviously isn't OCR'd. It's not like pulling something up on archive.org today, for instance. But there would be metadata for each individual file, and that metadata was stored in some form of memory. I don't know exactly how it worked. And that metadata could then be used to queue up your tape. So it's not like you could do a keyword search for everything, but you could at least bring up subject headers or file headers, just like flipping through a file cabinet instead of in manually going through all the tabs. It would just take you right to that folder that was on magnetic tape. <laughs> so it's just a faster way of filing. Well, and uh, less space intensive mm -hmm. because it's all on a roll of film instead of in file cabinets. Okay, so they are both working on that. Exactly. Video file is something that never really quite takes off. It's really too clunky and cumbersome, and, and computers come along too quickly after it. <laughs> there are a couple of places to use it. Like, I think Scotland Yard put their fingerprint database in it or something, and one of the railroads used one for a while. So, I mean, they sold a few systems, but it never did great. This was a period of time when the country was in recession, the early 70s. And it was also a time when military contracts were really starting to dry up for electronics companies because with the Vietnam War having gone so horribly wrong, Congress is now starting to really curtail defense spending. And it's a lot harder for R&D projects to get authorization to keep going. So the general economy is not doing well. The military economy is not doing well. Ampex is not doing very well. They go through a period of difficulty here. 
it's right in the middle of all of this going on that Nolan Bushnell discovers space war. There's some people that listen to that statement and are going to say, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. There is some controversy. Nolan Bushnell first played space war at the University of Utah when he was a college student. And then he only set it aside then because it would have been too expensive to put it on a computer back then. That is almost certainly untrue. And, and when I say almost certainly, I mean I'm 99.9% .9 certain that is untrue. Barring some sort of major evidence to the contrary. Right, which has not been forthcoming. There, there are a few problems here. First of all, Space War was a game that was created on a computer called the PDP-1. It was created there at MIT. After it was created at MIT in 1962, it did slowly start to spread around the country. There are a few other places that Space War became very popular as the 60s went on. Some defense contractors like Bolt Boronic and Newman, some universities like the University of Minnesota and Stanford. It was out there, but there's no indication that it was ever at the University of Utah in this time frame. In order to play Space War, you needed a computer that was fast enough to execute commands in real time, because this is a real-time game where you press your button or pull your lever and your ship is changing direction and moving and firing torpedoes at your opponent. You also needed a display, a CRT display. Very few computers at this time had CRT displays. Those computers that were able to give you some kind of readout on what was going on in the computer was almost always teletype. It was paper. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, ticket tape, ticket tape, ticket tape. Yep. You had to have a fast computer and you had to have a display. We know what computers the University of Utah had in their computer center during this period of time. Marty Goldberg, who co-wrote the Atari book, Business is Fun, did extensive research with a graduate student at the University of Utah where they actually went back through the records of the computer center to see what equipment they bought when, what equipment they installed when. When Nolan Bushnell first got there, they had an IBM 7044 computer. This was a mainframe that was probably not fast enough to execute Space War in real time, and certainly did not have a display. There was no display for it. In 1967, they replaced the 7044 with the UNIVAC 1108. A UNIVAC 1108 may have been powerful enough to run Space War. But it also didn't have a display right away. And when it finally got a display, it wasn't a CRT that was actually plugged into it. It got this kludgy thing where a PDP-8 mini-computer functioned as its display, because the PDP-8 had a display, and the PDP-8 was plugged into the 1108 and served as a display. And this was being used for high-end computer graphics research, because Utah became a major center for computer graphics research. I don't know if you know the firm Evans & Sunderland. No, I don't. Very, very important defense contractor founded by David Evans and Ivan Sunderland, who were both at the University of Utah as professors when they founded that company. Ed Catmull, who founded Pixar, came through the University of Utah's program. Alan Kay, who was part of Xerox PARC and was just a, a hugely important person in, in the miniaturization of computers and PDAs and all of that stuff, came out of Utah. Jim Clark, who founded Silicon Graphics and who founded Netscape, came out of the University of Utah. I mean, this was a program that was really quite a fine program. And by about 68 or so, that computer graphics stuff 
was starting to get going, and they were using that PDP-8 for that. But it wasn't really a situation where you could just play Space War on it. If a PDP-8 version even existed, and there's no indication that a PDP-8 version had even been created at that time, because, of course, it was a PDP-1 game. If you want to play it on something that's not a PDP-1, this is a time before standard operating systems across computers. This is a time before Unix, for instance, which was one of the first operating systems that was widespread across multiple computer models. It's a time when you're far more likely to be doing assembly language programming rather than high-level language programming, which meant that your program really was specific to your machine. It would take a lot of reworking to put it on another machine. Fortran and COBOL were around, but they were not languages that were suited to this kind of thing. Basic had just come around, but BASIC would have been way too slow to do a space war thing on. C didn't exist yet. C didn't exist until the early 70s. There's no indication the PDP-8 version existed. There's no indication that Utah's computers actually had the facility to run this. And recently, the school newspaper of the University of Utah for the years 1963 to 1972 were recently put online at a digital newspaper archive. They had had this student newspaper further back than 63, but this was the first time they'd done 63 on to 72, which is the period of time that's most interesting for what we're talking about here. There's not one mention of computer game playing at the University of Utah between 63 and 72 until 1970. And in 1970, all it was was an advanced geopolitical simulation that was a, a research project, not a for-fun kind of project. And involved just having the computer run the results after the players made their moves on paper. It wasn't a fully integrated or a real-time computer game. And that's the first mention of any kind of gaming at the University of Utah in 1970. And that's very important because with these school newspapers, that is what really gives you a read on all the different interesting things that are going on at the university. Mm -hmm. I think you've mentioned to me before that there's been other colleges that did have space war and it was covered in nearly every issue well, of yeah. the uh, absolutely student papers you know it was it was created at MIT and you better believe that there were articles on space war in MIT's newspaper i mean i've seen them they exist very soon after the game was created space war was also very big at stanford at the stanford artificial intelligence laboratory sale again not long after that was installed, there is an article in the Stanford student newspaper discussing this crazy new game that's at sale. You know, a it's lot of these newspapers are online. inconceivable that Utah would not cover this in some way, shape, or form in their student newspaper. Exactly. And then the other thing is, Nolan Bushnell has said under oath in the 1970s during court cases that he saw it at Utah. He was very vague on the when, whys, and hows, and wherefores of it, which was probably deliberate. But one thing he did say is that he had played the game and was interested in modifying it some himself. And so he asked his fraternity brother, Randall Willie, where he could get the code for the game. And he said that Randall then told him who to talk to to get a print out of the code so he could do whatever he wanted to do with it. Well, if you're paying close attention, you might have noticed I mentioned the name Randall Willey a few minutes ago as someone that I've actually talked to very recently. Mm -hmm. I did not put that question to him directly because I did not want to put him in a situation of directly contradicting Nolan. That, that wouldn't be nice. 
they haven't stayed in touch since the early 1970s, but, you know, they were fraternity brothers. I did ask him if he remembered any games being played at Utah, and he was there all the way up till 68. He was there as long as Nolan was. I asked him if he remembered any games being played at Utah. He said he did had no memory of that, and he did not see how the computer at Utah could have even done it, because the 1108, you fed punch cards, usually done in Fortran, into that machine. And he didn't even remember there being a display. We do know that there was this Kluge PDP-8 thing plugged into it. But he didn't even remember there being any kind of display on the 1108 at all. And in general operation, there really wasn't. Because like I said, it was actually a separate computer hooked into the 1108 that had the display. Which means that there's some sort of lag. You would think. You would think so. I'm, I'm not up on the, the hardware here, obviously, but that's the logical conclusion, <laughs> is that there I, would I be. I can see there being <laughs> delay with modern computers, so why not back then? Exactly. I think there probably was. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying I can't say for certain. The guy that apparently was Nolan's go-between on Space War has no memory of Space War. It's pretty cut and dried at this point. So why would Nolan say that? Well, the reason Nolan said that, and I think we probably mentioned this before, but I'll say it again for completeness in this episode, they were in a lawsuit with Magnavox over the Magnavox Odyssey and Ralph Baer's patents, because he had patented a lot of the basic concepts of a video game. We talked about that. It was in Nolan's best interest to say that he had started thinking about doing video games as early as he possibly could. Because Bear started working on this and had documents. We still have these documents today. He was meticulous. He was a stickler. He saved the documents. And he was smart. He had any document that he thought would form the basis of a legal record, he had them witnessed and signed by somebody else. So it's not just his word that he wrote this document in 1966. He also has a witness signed to this paper mm -hmm. saying he wrote it in 1966. He started on his work in 1966 and didn't patent it until much later. Uh, I think the patent finally issued in 72, but he submitted the patent earlier than that. So it was in Nolan's best interest to show that he was working on video game stuff as early as he could. And so he came up with this idea that he saw Space War at the University of Utah in 1965 or 1966. That gives him enough precedent before. Right. That's... And is plausible. Right. And as long as he doesn't get too specific on names, dates, and here's and there's, the lawyers are probably not going to track down any information that specifically contradicts what he's saying. Nor would they have probably needed to try too hard, because quite frankly, even if he worked was working on that stuff that early, that would really be immaterial to the patent issues at hand, because the fact of the matter is, Bear still had his stuff patented. He could still show that he was the first one to to actually do anything. And Bushnell saying, I kind of sort of had some ideas and wrote some stuff down back in 66 or 67. <laughs> if he can't generate any proof, then it doesn't matter. So it's not like they had to disprove his claim. He had to prove his claim. And mm -hmm. He could not provide enough evidence to do that in a court of law. That's probably why he did that. And then I think over time, it probably, if you remember something a certain way often enough, that becomes your memory. That's the psychology of the human being. Whatever lie, whether intentional or unintentional, if it, you believe it strong enough, it's the truth, at least for you, it's the truth. So I think Nolan may very well be even believe now that he first saw it at the University of Utah. He, he may not be deliberately lying at this point. I think he was in 1976 when he was having his deposition taken. I don't even think he necessarily is now. 
Well, I can believe it. I mean, we have cases of false memories as a human race. Mm-hmm. If you would like an example of this uh, audience, I have the one that I love, and this tends to freak out a ton of people. I see Alex smiling because he knows which one I'm going for here. So, is it the Bernstein Bears or the Bernstein Bears? E-I-N or A-I-N? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people say it's the Berenstein Bears, but it's not. It's the Berenstein Bears. And if you think you're the Berenstein Bears, you're from my universe and I love you. <laughs> and we're trying to find a way back home. That's right. But of course, on the books, it was always written in cursive. And that's why people always thought it was an E and not and, an A. Right. So if you're a young person that doesn't know cursive very well, you're going to naturally think it's Steen because Steen is more common. And so your mind remembers it as Berenstein Bears and when it's Berenstein Bears. So <laughs> it's right. called the Mandela effect. It is. So if you want to go down a rabbit hole and maybe or maybe not, I'll throw some sort of video of this into the <laughs> show notes. Might as well. Might as well. <laughs> it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down to. That's the one that I always like to go to because many people of our generation grew up with the Berenstein, Berenstein Bears. Mm-hmm. They relate to that. There's a whole bunch of other ones. The reason it's called the Mandela Effect is because there's a belief that Nelson Mandela died in prison and didn't survive prison. Mm-hmm. There's a group of people that believe that. A sizable one. Um, another one had to do with where Madagascar is. But it's really interesting to sort of like mass false memory of whatever the lie is or whatever the misunderstanding is. Mm-hmm. It becomes the truth for so many people. Exactly. I mean, to this day, the truth for me is Berenstein Bears, <laughs> even though logically I know it's the Berenstein Bears. Sure. Nolan maintains to this day that he first saw Space War at the University of Utah, and that's how it's written in a lot of sources that have mostly gotten this information from Nolan Bushnell. As you can see by some of what I've talked about here, this is almost certainly false. I, You can't 100% prove a negative. That's just the way logic works. So we have to leave the door open. There is no evidence that that game was ever there in that time frame. And I think we would know if it was. So anyway, back to California, 1969, new engineer, Nolan Bushnell. At Ampex. We've talked about how Nolan is a fanatical game player. One of the games that he's very interested in at this point in his life is the game of Go. He'd been an avid chess player for a long time, and he was on chess clubs and chess teams. And a Korean that he played with at the University of Utah, played chess with, introduced him to Go. He went mad for the game. It's a much more complex game than than chess, with many more variations. It is. So he was playing in Go clubs in the San Francisco area. And one of the Go clubs he played in was a club at Stanford University. We already talked about how a little bit how big Space War was there. So basically, Space War was invented, programmed, designed at MIT. The lead programmer on that was a Harvard employee, not an MIT employee. A lot of people get that wrong, named Steve Russell. Steve Russell ended up leaving Harvard to follow one of his mentors, John McCarthy, the father of artificial intelligence research, to Stanford University in 1963 maybe late 62, somewhere in there, and was one of the founding members of SAIL, Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, with John McCarthy. So, of course, he brought Space War with him because 
He was the one that programmed it. He wasn't the sole creator and actually wasn't the sole programmer either, but he was kind of he was kind of the project leader, if you will. So he got Space War up and running on the PDP-1 at Stanford. And then when they moved to a PDP-6, he upgraded it to that. And then when they moved to a PDP-6, PDP-10 hybrid system that was time-shared, actually all these were time-shared systems, they migrated it to that. It was so popular, and we might have mentioned this in a previous episode, I can't remember, that the programmers at Sale actually created a Space War mode, which was a time-sharing mode where they specifically optimized it so that just enough processing power was allocated to Space War to run Space War, and not one cycle more, so that other work could be done on the mainframe by people doing real work while the Space War people were playing Space War. You have to have a limiter for that CPU usage, <laughs> otherwise Space War just eats up all the CPU. Sort of like if you played World of Zine and tried to run it on a modern computer. <laughs> The animations go way too fast. <laughs> so Sale was mad for Space War. And this is well documented in a lot of sources. It was really there, and people were really mad for it. Which, again, if people were so mad for it as you, at Utah, as Nolan Bushnell claimed, we should have some of the same sources. So Jim Stein was a worker at Sale and was in this Go Club with Nolan. One day he told Nolan, it's like, you want to come over and see all the cool stuff we have going on at Sale? And Nolan was like, sure, let's do that. And that's when Nolan was introduced to Space War. And the interesting thing is, Nolan tells this story too. So this story comes from Nolan. Of course, the way he tells it is that he had seen Space War, knew it wasn't economical, and so kind of shoved it to the back of his brain and forgot about it. And then it was brought back to the forefront of his brain by his reintroduction to the game at Stanford. Well, it doesn't seem that there's any kind of reintroduction about it. It seems it was just an introduction. And it's interesting. I think we touched on this in a previous episode also. The earliest interview in which he says that he saw it at Utah was in 1973, November, in Systems Engineering Today or something like that. Uh, it was an engineering trade publication. This story of his goes way back because he's saying it since November 1973. But in the summer of 1973, he was actually in a documentary. This is unbelievable. Just a documentary was shot around... Stanford and around Silicon Valley about computers and games people were playing on computers. And this documentary crew actually interviewed Nolan. Hmm. And this documentary and this documentary actually survives. <laughs> it's actually on YouTube now. We can, I think, we can find we should be able to find it and put it up uh, in the show notes. Well, we'll look for it. If we yeah. can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So this is earlier than that trade publication interview. This is, I think the documentary came out in summer 73, so he might have even been interviewed in spring 73. This is obviously after Atari's already been founded. And he, in this little interview snippet, tells them that his inspiration for Computer Space, his first video game, was all the cool games that were being played at Stanford. He said that we were playing these cool games at Stanford, and then one day it suddenly hit. It's like, geez, this could be a product. No mention of Utah. Mm -hmm. No mention of first coming up with the idea at Utah or first playing the game at Utah. And then the narrator, after that interview snippet, so this is not straight from Nolan's mouth, but the narrator, after Nolan says that, says that Nolan first saw the game at Stanford. Now, obviously, that is not conclusive because it's not straight from Nolan's mouth. It could be the narrator extrapolating based on what Nolan's told him and making an erroneous statement. But still, again, there's no mention of Utah. There's only a mention of Stanford. And Nolan does tell a story of discovering the game at Stanford. He just claims it wasn't his first discovery of the game. 
but it seems very clear. And I know we've spent a lot of the episode on this, but this is one of those moments that is so misrepresented that it's worth going through all the evidence so that our listeners realize that we're not just changing the established narrative just to change it or just because there's a new wave of Nolan bashing coming and people want to want to put him down or something. This is based on real evidence. On the evidence that we have. And yep. if you have something to the contrary, I'm sure Alex would love to see it. Feel free to contact us and give it to us. We'd, we'd like to know. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're objective here. Absolutely. The a evidence we have yeah. says this, and you got something different, yeah. by all means. From a primary source. Yeah. Don't, don't show me Stephen Kent's book where Stephen Kent says that it was first at Utah. So, yes, I know Stephen Kent says that. <laughs> but if you have a primary source, please, by all means. <laughs> So he sees this game, and not long after that, he sees an advertisement for the Data General Nova mini computer. The Nova was the first mini computer to plunge through the $10,000 barrier because it used medium scale integration integrated circuits. Integrated circuits are still very new at this point, and MSI integrated circuits are very new at this point. This is the first time that a computer costs under 10000 It can cost as low as 4000 for just the computer to get some of the other memory upgrades and equipment that you really need to get it to work well. Costs more like 8000 But they also give bulk discounts on bulk orders, so you can even bring that price down a little bit. That puts computing power almost within reach of a product you can tailor to the public. Before this, computers are way too expensive. A PDP-1 that Space War was built on was a $120,000 computer. And that was ridiculously cheap compared to most mainframes at the time, which are still setting you back like a million and a half for a computer. You can't build a product for the public around that. Computing time is too precious. You have to be using it for serious work. You can't justify it as an entertainment product. You'll never make your money back on that. The Nova is the first computer that makes it look like maybe, maybe we can do a commercial product. Can't do something for the home at $8,000 of 1969 money. But maybe an arcade or maybe. some other large establishment. But the trick is you would have to timeshare. One $8,000 computer running one version of Space War at a quarter a pop. You're not going to make your $8,000 back. No. Plus, it's a little more expensive than $8,000 because you have to get the televisions or monitors that you're going to use and you have to get the interfaces and everything. Marketing, presentation. Right. But maybe if you could timeshare the Nova between four to six terminals and have four to six versions of the game running at once, all taking in quarters, all running off of that Nova, that might do it because then you're about down to the price per unit of the more advanced electrical mechanical arcade games that are coming out these days. Then you're talking more about more like 1000 or 1200 per unit. I mean, you buy the whole thing for more than that, but it comes out to more like 1200 per terminal. That's getting into the realm of what an arcade game might cost. That might be doable. So now Nolan's had all these things going through his head. It's like he's pinball mad. He knows how the coin-op business works. He's interested in computers. He's found this really cool new computer game. Well, it's not new, but it's new to him. Space War. And he's found a computer that is relatively inexpensive. This all coalesces in his mind, and he decides that he is going to introduce the first computer game as a mass market form of entertainment, which is a stunning thing to decide to do. I mean, Nolan Bushnell deserves all the credit in the world. 
Obviously, Ralph Baer came to the same conclusion. Another guy named Bill Pitts, who created a version of Space War on a mini computer as well called the Galaxy Game. He came to that conclusion. Bushnell's not the only one, but only a very small number of people in the entire world thought this was something that could be done. And of course, as we'll see, Nolan Bushnell's the only one who really does it very successfully. Nolan Bushnell deserves all the credit in the world for putting all of these pieces together. Just because we're talking about what he did or didn't do at any period of time in his life doesn't mean that we are not amazed at what Nolan Bushnell accomplished, because he is the father of the video game industry. And I'm not taking that away from him just because he saw it first at Stanford instead of seeing it at Utah. That's right. that, trivial. That, we, yeah, it's very trivial. It's largely immaterial, mm -hmm. apart from an academic standpoint. Right. He created an industry and really showed people that, hey, you can make money at this. That's right. So he is, starts assembling a team because he's not a good enough engineer to do this himself. So he ropes in Ted Dabney. Ted's his office mate. They're friends. They have daughters that are a similar age. They socialize. They play Go together. Nolan taught him Go so they could play together. They had a board that they would play sometimes when it was slow at work that Ted Dabney made where it was a Go board on one side and it had like an Ampex logo on the other side so they'd hang it on the wall and it would just look like a little Ampex knickknack. And then when no one was around, they could take it off the wall and the other side was a Go board and they could play a game. Clever. Yep. So they were friends. Uh, so he got Dabney in because he needed somebody to do all the analog engineering, power supply, monitor interface, all of that. But he also needed some help with the digital engineering too. And then they needed someone to create the time-sharing system. Space War existed on the Data General Nova, so I don't know that they needed someone. You know, this is actually something I never thought to ask, and I'm not sure everyone's thought to ask, is, you know, since they were planning to do it on a computer, where did the Space War program they were planning to use come from? And, and the answer is they might have just found it somewhere, because it's documented that Space War had been ported to the Nova back in 1968. When the Nova was first debuted, Data General actually ran Space War on it to show its capabilities. Space War, because it was such an advanced program, was often used as a demo program to showcase hardware. Mm -hmm. It's possible that they just scrounged up a version of Space War somewhere. So they had that already, but they needed a programmer at the very least to do the timesharing software because they were going to have to timeshare this computer and they were going to have to optimize the timesharing. They couldn't just take some generic already existing timesharing in the Nova's operating system or something, just like Space War mode at sale. They were going to have to create a very specific timeshare system that optimized the load between all of these games specifically and was dedicated to just that one task. So they needed a programmer for that. They went to a guy named Larry Bryan, who was a programmer in the video file division, and again was somebody that Nolan socialized with. Bryan and Dabney did not socialize, but Bushnell socialized with Dabney and Bushnell socialized with Bryan. And so he brought both of them in to this project, these friends of his. That ties into his being able to walk in many circles. Absolutely. They need to form a partnership, and they need a name for the partnership. Larry Bryan's the one that provides the name. There are three of them. Larry Bryan remembers this word syzygy, that he remembers has something to do with three things, and there's three of them. So they look it up in the dictionary. What a syzygy is, it's kind of an astrology term. It's when three celestial bodies are in a line. That's called syzygy, for whatever reason. For all you people who are afraid of all the planets going into alignment and ripping our atmosphere off, we are waiting for the great celestial syzygy. That's right. They thought that was cool. It's got that cosmic element to it, and they're making a cosmic game, and it's got that element of three in it, and there are three of them. So that really feels like a good name. So they decide to call this partnership syzygy. 
I don't think they actually formally establish a partnership at this point. It's it's kind of unclear. And what I mean by that is I don't think there's a partnership agreement where they outline what percentage of the company each of the partners owns or anything like that. But they kind of have this partnership syzygy. Well, it becomes clear very quickly that time-sharing this Nova is not going to work. The Nova is a mini-computer. It's not a mainframe. It has a limited amount of processing power. And asking the Nova to have four or six versions of Space War, a real-time graphical computer game, running at the exact same time, that's just going to blow, <laughs> blow it up, essentially. There's not enough memory. There's not enough cycles. There's not enough whatever to do that. We need liquid nitrogen cooling. <laughs> so Larry Bryan is not on the project very long because he works on this off and on for two weeks and he's basically like, there's no way. And so then Larry Bryan walks off into history. <laughs> Bushnell is not giving up that easily. Bushnell still thinks this is such a great idea. They keep pushing on it and they start pushing on it on the hardware end. And again, there are a lot of different stories about computer space, the game that became computer space and who did what and how it was implemented and when it was implemented. The version I'm going with is the version that Nolan recounted in his deposition in 1976. Obviously, we've already established that Nolan in that deposition was maybe not always accurate. But that is the earliest account of the creation of the game. And so you figure that the memories are the freshest. And unlike in the instance of where he saw Space War, there's really no reason to bend the truth on. This version may not be completely accurate, but it's what we're going to go with here. Basically, they started, Bushnell and Dabney, started building specialized hardware to try to move elements of the game out of the computer. So it's like, okay, if the computer can't calculate everything, maybe we can do a hybrid approach where the star field is just generated by a separate piece of hardware and the computer doesn't have to spend any cycles generating the star field at all. Or maybe the gravity calculations done by the sun. I, I don't know if these are specific things they were going for, but I'm just giving examples. Maybe that doesn't need to be calculated by the computer. Maybe that can be a specialized piece of hardware. So they're trying to start building a hardware system that would still have the computer at the heart of it, but where the computer would not be responsible for nearly as much of what is going on. Sort of similar to how computers are now. Think of the Nova as the CPU. Mm -hmm. If it tries to run a game and it had to run everything through the CPU, mm -hmm. it's going to get bogged down and lose all capability of doing anything. Right. So they're trying to come up with ways of, here's the equivalent of a video card. Mm -hmm. Here's the equivalent of a sound card. Mm -hmm. Here's the equivalent of whatever. Right, exactly. So they get it to the point where Nolan thinks they may have something that's going to work now. And they've tested the hardware. They've created what's called an exerciser, which basically replicated certain parts of the Nova's functionality because they don't have a Nova. They don't have access to a Nova to actually work with. This is an expensive computer. But they've created an exerciser that emulates enough of the Nova to at least make sure that the rest of what they're doing is kind of working. It's not a complete emulation of the Nova, but, you know, it's kind of. And they've got this exerciser to the point where it can move a dot around on a TV screen. So they kind of know that it's their basic system is working. And they kind of think that they have it to the point that they might be able to go further, or at least Nolan thinks they might be able to go further. Ted Dabney's recollection of his involvement is a bit different. He remembers there being a lot more gaps and a lot more stops and starts. Either way, Nolan at least thinks he's got something at this point. And he actually drafts a letter to Data General. And that's another reason why I somewhat 
believe Nolan's version here because there's a document that partially supports Nolan's version. This document I have not seen. It may not exist anymore, but the court saw it. It was a piece of evidence in the court case and the deposition references this letter and quotes this letter. He wrote a letter dated January, I believe, the 26th, 1971, to Data General, saying that we would like to order, I think, six of everything or something like that. He wanted to order computers from Data General so that they could actually start going on this. He never sent the letter. He never ordered anything. But the fact that he drafted a letter in January 1971 does tend to provide support to some of Nolan's version of events as, as relayed in the deposition. So he drafts that letter. Then, according to Nolan in his deposition, he goes and finally gets some time on a real Nova just to kind of run through everything that they've done. And one of the operators of the Nova at whatever computer center he went to to do that points out that there are some errors in Nolan's calculations and that, no, the Nova's still not going to run what you're doing. No way. So that seems to be the end of it. And that's then the point where Nolan has his big conceptual breakthrough. And this was his breakthrough and his alone. And even Ted Dabney agrees with that. We've done so much already to move stuff to specialized pieces of equipment. We have an exerciser that's already kind of emulating the important features of the Nova for our purposes. Why do we need a computer? What is that bringing to this? Why can't we do the entire thing in hardware? They'd have to build some more hardware. They're not to the point where they can do that today. But why don't we just do it in hardware? Makes sense if you're apart from bloody mindlessness, just wailing away, well, we said we were going to use this computer, so we're using this come hell or high water. Right. Well, and it is difficult. It's not the intuitive way to do things because you're actually having to take a television and essentially take control of the CRT directly and tell it where to draw. So you're basically, you're giving it the offsets and you're, you're giving it a horizontal offset and a vertical offset and you're updating that constantly. And by updating those two variables, it's updating where on the screen it's drawing the dot. It's not a full bitmapped screen where you're drawing a whole screen, because of course that would take up way too much memory in those days. It wasn't necessarily intuitive to create a state machine like that, where you're just counting off the, the horizontal and vertical offset on the television. But that's what Nolan decides to do. He runs that by Ted, and Ted says, yeah, I think we can do that. And so they start building the entire game, which they're calling Cosmic Combat at this point, entirely in hardware. So they get started on that, and then they find nutting because of the dentist appointment. I think we talked about in the Nutting Associates episode. Nolan Bushnell's dentist is also the dentist for the head of sales at Nutting. So they connect through the dentist, essentially, and connect with Nutting and build that game computer space at Nutting Associates. It does okay, it doesn't do great, but it is the first commercially available video game. Ralph Baer started working on his before Nolan, but Nolan's came out before Baer's did in late November or early December of 1971. So at this point, Syzygy still kind of exists, but Nolan and then later Ted are working for Nutting. You know, Syzygy's not their primary focus. But Nolan's not very impressed with Nutting's management. I don't know how justified that is in hindsight, but he was not very impressed with Nutting's management. He did not want to continue with Nutting unless he had a stake in the company. Bill Nutting was not willing to give him more than about 5% of the company, which was unacceptable for Nolan, completely unacceptable, not enough of a stake. 
So he decides that he's going to leave and focus on the syzygy thing instead. So he and Ted break with Nutting uh, at the end of May, beginning of June 1972 to start out on their own. The company they plan to make is purely a development company, an R&D company. They're going to come up with game concepts, and they're going to sell those concepts on to coin-op manufacturers for royalties. Equivalent to what they've already done with Nutting. Right, to a degree. Nutting was a little different because Nolan actually went to work for Nutting, though he did retain the rights to his video game technology separate from Nutting and got royalties on that product. So they had computer space royalties that they were going to use to help start this company. There's a story that Atari was started with contributions of $250 each from Bushnell and Dabney. That's not true. When they were building computer space, or cosmic combat as it was called at the time, and they were in their syzygy days, they did each make some small contributions. It was actually 350 each, not 250, but they made some small contributions towards the company to like buy some components and print business cards or print letterhead or something like that. That was syzygy. That was not Atari. People get that mixed up. So when people say Atari was founded on an investment of $250, <laughs> no, they, they actually had several thousand dollars at that point in computer space royalties. It was founded with something like $5,000 <laughs> was what Atari was founded for. But they founded the company in June of 72, and they were going to just incorporate as Syzygy. But they discovered that that name was already in use, I guess, when they submitted it to the Secretary of State's office. Sometimes they say it was a roofing company. Sometimes they say it was a candle company. People have searched the records and haven't necessarily even found anything that matches, but whatever. Their impression was that it was in use. Whether it was in use or not, I don't know. So they had to change the name because you couldn't have a same corporation in the state of California. Bushnell, the big Go fan, chose three terms from Go, Hane, Sente, and Atari, as the three names to submit to the Secretary of State's office for approval. Atari, I think we talked about before, it's similar to Czech in chess, where if you've put a stone in jeopardy in a situation where that stone will be taken if it does not move to an adjacent square, then that stone is said to be put in Atari. So that, that's where the term comes from. And Atari is the name of the three that the Secretary of State's office chose. What technically happened is Atari was a new corporation. And Atari actually acquired all the assets of the pre-existing Syzygy partnership in exchange for shares of Atari to the partners of Syzygy. Of course, the partners of Syzygy and the partners of Atari were the same people. So they gave themselves shares of Atari stock in exchange for the acquisition of Syzygy. That's all on paper. That's just corporate mumbo-jumbo. Legal wranglings. Essentially, Syzygy became Atari. But technically speaking, Atari was a new company, and it absorbed Syzygy. And that was uh, official on June the 27th, 1972. So we are fast approaching the... 45th anniversary of Atari, by the time the second of our three episodes air in the series, we will have hit and just passed the 45th anniversary of Atari. So on the 27th of June, celebrate and play your Atari. That's right. Play your Atari that day. Or the television commercial will be mad at you. I don't know. That gets us up to Atari. So their very first deal to create games is a deal with Bally. Bally is the largest most important, biggest coin-operated company in existence. They're not the strongest in pinball. They actually trail in pinball, but because they're very big in the slot machine business, they are the biggest and most powerful coin-operated company, even though in some of the games areas, they're not as strong as some of their competitors. 
Nolan Bushnell had made friends with Gil Kitt of Empire Distributing at the MOA show in 1971 when they were debuting Computer Space with Nutting. Empire Distributing was a Chicago-based distributor that was one of the real tastemakers in the coin-operated games field because they were in Chicago and they were a large distributor. So since they were right there where all the manufacturers were, it's like if Empire is interested in it and Empire starts buying it, then that's something that's probably going to be successful. So they were always on the lookout for talented new people and interesting new things, and they had a lot of clout in Chicago with the manufacturers. Gil Kitt, even though he actually thought video games were probably going to be a fad, he wasn't thinking that they would be something that would endure, he was impressed with Nolan and kept in touch with Nolan, and he also had a lot of clout with Bally. In fact, in December 1972, Bally buys Empire Distributing. Not at the period of time we're talking about, they're still independent, but that just shows how close Bally and Empire are to each other. So Gill arranges a meeting between Nolan and Bally when Nolan's out in April, this is before he left Nutting, in April 72, doing a service school for distributors and operators in the Chicago area. Basically, manufacturers would send tech people out to show how their equipment worked and how to service their equipment so that local operators and distributors had a better idea of what to do when the equipment broke down. So he was out doing a service school, and while he was there, he met with Bally on the sly with John Britz, who was the VP of technology at Bally. Britz was like, yeah, yeah, we'd love to do something with you. That's very cool, but not while you're employed by a competitor, not while you're still employed with Nutting. So that's why they had to leave Nutting at that point, mm -hmm. because Bally wasn't going to work with them if they were still there. So once they formally severed ties with Nutting at the beginning of June, they signed a development deal with Bally, where Bally would pay them 4000 a month for six months, starting July 1st, 1972. And in return, Atari would provide them the concept for one video game and one pinball table. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So they get themselves a small little, uh, it's called a roll-up facility. It's just, it's an office in the front, and it has a warehouse in the back with a roll-up door, and it's it's an incubator kind of place that they lease. California has a lot of these like small incubator places for new businesses. They get themselves their first employee, which is Nolan's babysitter, who they hire to be a receptionist because they want to give people the idea that they're a bigger company than they really are. So they have a receptionist who can answer the phone and then say, oh, I'll see if he's in, and then set the phone down for three minutes and then walk two feet over to Nolan and say, call for you. And then... You know, he gets on, but makes it seem like they're a bigger operation because they have a secretary and you're being put on hold and they're very busy. I'm an important business person. That's right. They get started on this deal. Dabney's working on the pinball machine because he's better with that mechanical and analog stuff. Nolan is working on a deal with Nutting because Nutting does want to follow up on the computer space product. So Nolan makes a deal where he will create a two-player version of computer space. Computer space is just one player against the hardware. This will be a two-player version of computer space that they can do as a sequel product, a follow-up product for the next year. So Nolan's going to be working on that. So to create the video game for Bally, they need a third engineer because they've each got a project they're taking. So they go back to that Ampex well again, and they hire Al Alcorn. Al Alcorn is a University of Berkeley grad, and while he was at Berkeley, he was doing a work-study program where you basically attend classes for six months and work for a company for six months and alternate between the two. His mother knew the president of Ampex, and so his mother helped him land a job in the Ampex video file division as an intern, as a junior engineer. 
uh, well, as an engineering intern at this point. So he knows Nolan and Ted from Video 5, and he's uh, an expert at television repair. He's been working with televisions for a long time, so he understands TV, and he's working on video hardware at Ampex. So he understands video very well from his experiences, and he's a young guy who's not so established that he might be afraid of leaving a cushy job to go try to do something else. Nolan approaches Al and asks him if he'll come to work for Atari for him to do this video game project. It's a pay cut. He's making 1200 a month at Ampex. By now, he's a full-time employee, I should say. He started in this internship. Then he was hired on permanently as a junior engineer at Ampex. It's a pay cut. He has to go from 1200 to 1000 He gets a little stock, but he doesn't think the company's going to be anything at all, so he considers the Atari stock to be pretty worthless. But he thinks this would just be kind of fun, and he's a bit of a free spirit. He grew up in San Francisco near the corner of Haight and Ashbury. He had a front row view for the student protest movement, and he was at Berkeley, which was a very liberal school and very much the heart of the student protest movement. So he's a kind of free-spirited guy, so he's willing to go out and figures he'll have some fun, and if it doesn't work out, then you know he'll just get a real job in two or three years, and in the meantime, he'll have some fun doing this. So Al Alcorn agrees to come on board as the, the first engineering employee of the company. Nolan wants to make a kind of complex hockey game. He's probably inspired by this. He doesn't, he claims he doesn't remember this. I, I asked him about this, but there's actually a document that he sent to Bally saying that the video game they're working on is a hockey game. So again, there's documentary evidence. He almost certainly got this idea from seeing the Magnavox Odyssey because on May 24th, he attended a demonstration and he signed the guest book. So again, this is known. The guest book survives. It was used in the litigation. On May 24th, he saw a presentation of the Odyssey in advance of its release, when it was being demoed to potential distributors. He saw the Odyssey being played. He saw the ping pong game on the Odyssey, which was very primitive. It's nothing like Pong, which we're getting to in a second with Atari. Nothing like that at all. It's two dots, two squares for the paddles, not rectangles, just squares, and a square of the same size, really, for the ball. You have a separate control to move your paddle up and down and left and right, and then the ball has no velocity to it. It just goes back and forth in one direction. It, it doesn't, it can't go off on a different vector. You have a control, a third dial on your controller that allows you to move the ball a little bit, manipulate it, make it spin a little bit, but it's pretty much as basic as you can get because this has to be a consumer product. You know, to get a consumer product down in price enough that it can be affordable to the general public means that you're really cutting corners on technology. <laughs> He sees this game, and that very well be, may be what inspires him to do a hockey game. It's certainly what inspires them to do Pong. That's well known, but this hockey game concept is not well known, and so it's speculative whether that's why he had this hockey game project. Most sources say that he wanted to do a driving game, and he was certainly interested in those kind of games, but the fact of the matter is the document he sent to Ballet said, we're doing a hockey game with little figures on the screen and with friction from the ice and with all of this fancy stuff going on. He doesn't feel Al Alcorn's ready to implement all of that all at once. He knows that's going to be a very complicated process because this is all done in hardware. You want a function, you build a circuit for it. There's no program, there's no microprocessors, there's no software. You want a function, you build a circuit. That's a lot of circuits and that's a lot of complexity. Nolan decides to start him out as a training exercise with something much simpler. Basically the table tennis game he saw in Burlingame at this Odyssey demonstration. I think it makes sense that he had him probably do a table tennis game because that would be adaptable into the hockey game. 
easily. It, it makes more sense that way than I'm going to have you do a driving game, but first do a ball and paddle game. It's like your deal with Bally is only six months, so you have to have a workable product in six months. Why would you have him spend two or three months doing something that has no bearing on the final project? Well, you can easily adapt a ping pong thing to a hockey game, even if you had to change it a little bit for hockey. Right. That's just speculation, because Nolan doesn't remember there being a hockey concept at all. And Al didn't know he was being lied to about Pong being the product they were actually making. So he didn't know what ulterior thing he would have been designing instead. So that, that's lost to history. But I'm a, it makes sense that he assigned him the Pong game. I mean, he was inspired by what he saw at the Magnavox, of course, but that he was going to have him develop that later into the hockey game. So he told Al that they had a consumer contract from General Electric to make a TV game, not an arcade game, this would be for the home, of a table tennis game. And so you need to have a couple of paddles, you need to have a ball, you need to have a center line, and you need to have a score on the screen. The Magnavox Odyssey did not have a score on the screen. So he was trying to get Al to do something more complex than what was going on with the Odyssey. But it was still basically, you know, it was ping pong, just like he saw them play on the Odyssey. So go do that. So Al works on this ping pong project. He considers it an absolute failure because he thinks it's supposed to be a consumer product. And when he's done, it is way too many chips and way too expensive to be a consumer product. But it's fun because he builds in vectors. So the paddle is divided into segments, and depending on which side, uh, which portion of the paddle the ball hits, it'll go off on a different vector. It'll go at an angle up or straight on or an angle down, etc. And he also put in a feature that the longer the rally goes on, the faster the ball goes. There's a speed-up function just to make it more exciting so it's not a uniform speed. So when he gets this all implemented, it's actually really fun. So at this point, they decide, let's do this instead. And according to Ted, Nolan was really against doing it at first as their game that they submitted to Bally. And you have to wonder if that's because he knew that they had stolen so much of the idea from the Magnavox demonstration that that could get them into trouble. Who knows? But Nolan finally comes around too, and they decide to put it on test. They put it in a bar called Andy Caps. When they left Nutting, they actually bought a coin-op route that Nutting had been running. They were running that as part of Atari for extra income. They had games at several bars, pinball machines, and even a couple of computer space machines at several bars and bowling alleys or whatnot in the area around Santa Clara. So they put Pong on location at Andy Cap's Tavern. It does massively well. At one point, it even breaks down because it takes in so many coins in a week that they're spilling out of the makeshift coin drop box that they've put in it and are spilling out onto the circuit board and ruining <laughs> the function of the circuit board. <laughs> it's hugely popular because it's, it's new, it's novel, it's different looking, and, you know, it's fast-paced and kind of fun, and it's competitive. You can make a drinking game out of it. Yeah, and so it does really well. Bally is not interested. They don't like the fact that it's two-player only. They feel that for a game to take in enough quarters, it has to at least have a one-player option because it's harder to keep a machine constantly churning if you always have to wait for two people to come up and put a coin in. And they're probably also a little bit nonplussed that, though this is, again, speculation, that Nolan had promised them this hockey game with all of this advanced features, and now he's offering them something a lot more primitive. And it's like, what's up with that? Bally's not very enthusiastic. Nolan has taken a, sep a second prototype to Chicago to show to Bally. 
show to John Britz and Joseph Lally, the head of engineering at Bally. They're not impressed. They take it over to their Midway subsidiary, which does a lot of their actual coin-operated game manufacturing. We talked about Midway before. It used to be an independent company, but Bally purchased it in 1969. And Iggy Wolverton, the president of Midway, also is not very interested in it at that time. So it's just completely rejected. But it's done so well at Andy Capps that Nolan and Ted and Al are all pretty darn sure this game is going to be a hit. They build a dozen units themselves, and they put 10 of them on their coin route, and they keep one in their shop for demonstrations, and they send one to Bally so Bally can evaluate it themselves. And most of the locations they put the game on, again, it earns phenomenally well. It earns so well that they actually decide to cut the earnings reports by a third when they send them to Valley, because they think if they send them as they are, the Valley staff will think that they're inflating the numbers to try to convince them to take the game. That's how well it's doing. Hmm. They cut their own numbers so that they're believable. That's pretty impressive. Valley still rejects it. So at that point, Nolan decides that they can't let this die and that they have to manufacture themselves. They have to set up their own assembly line because they don't want this game to just die because it's obviously going to be a huge hit. Al and Ted are very much against this. And this is actually a point where Nolan and Ted disagree because Ted claims that he wasn't against it. But in this case, both Nolan and Al claim that Ted was reluctant at first. Ted claims Nolan was reluctant at first, but that doesn't make much sense to me because Nolan is the outsized risk taker. He's always the one pushing farther, farther, farther. It doesn't make sense to me that he would suddenly be the one that was hesitant. He wouldn't be the one to show restraint. He'd be like, this is good. I know this is going to make money. Go for it. Go, go, go. Right. So even though Nolan has claimed things in the past that may not be entirely accurate, in this case, I trust Nolan's account over Ted's account, both in terms of the personalities involved and because, in this case, Al remembers the same thing Nolan does. So Nolan finally convinces the other two that they need to manufacture themselves. and so. They start building more units. Their little office space is not big enough for this. There's an identical unit right next door to them that's currently vacant. Ted Dabney actually cuts out a hole between the two spaces, creates a door frame, and then they tell their landlord, by the way, we're moving into the neighboring space. We're annexing it. Yes. We're pirates. And obviously they paid more money for it. But yes, they uh, invaded first, asked permission later. It is always easier to ask for forgiveness, kids. That's right. So they build about 50 units of the game, which fills up their facility. And I mean, they're spilling out into the parking lot. I mean, it's just nuts. But they're getting orders because word of the incredible earnings that they've gotten have made their way around the local distributors in California. Several local distributors jump on this and order hundreds of units right from the get-go. Well, they've only managed to build 50, and that strains their capacity, so now they need a new building entirely. Their landlord also owns a former concert hall and roller skating rink. It was first a concert hall, then a roller skating rink, that has the space to set up their manufacturing operation. So then they lease that building. In addition, they keep their office space that they already have. They get a bank loan from Ted Dabney's banker at Wells Fargo to set up an assembly line in this roller rink. Hmm. They start hiring anyone they can find which means high school students, college students, they go to the unemployment office. It's a motley crew 
there's a lot of drug addicts and welfare recipients and motorcycle gang members and hippies, all sorts of crazy characters. It's a pretty wild and woolly place. There's drug use going on. There's a lot of television theft going on until they crack down on that. It's not an efficient assembly line at all. They can't get more than maybe a dozen units built a day, which is really, really poor for an assembly line, <laughs> even for an arcade game like this. The big factories can do 100, 150 a day. They're struggling to move past a dozen units. But they start building these things. They're getting good uh, orders, and they finally are able to go nationwide by about March 73. So in November 1972, they start selling it locally in California. March 1973, they're starting to sell it nationally. It becomes huge. Pong is a massive, massive hit. It spawns a lot of competitor products as well. Pong sells maybe 8,000 units, but the entire market is 70,000 units. They sell barely over 10% of the total market because it took them so long to ramp up production, and their assembly lines are so inefficient compared to the competition that they get beat out on a lot of the sales, and there are a lot of clones. But video games are huge in 1973. 70,000 units total, 8,000 Pong units, 8,500 Pong units from Atari specifically. Just a really big deal. That's what launches Atari. That is the big break. Their debut title. That's right. They're a hit right out the gate. Now comes the problem of how do you grow this company responsibly? And there are a few different elements to that. Nolan Bushnell knows that he does not have the business skills to manage a growing company. He had the vision to get it started, but he can't really manage it. Ted, unfortunately, at this point is completely lost. And this is, this is one of those things that's kind of been muddled over the years. There's been this attempt to paint Ted as a victim who was kind of forced out of Atari by Nolan. And he was forced out. Let's, let's make that clear. But there were really sound business reasons for doing it. I think I've told you before how all these Ampex and early Atari people just kind of see Ted as a non-entity. Mm-hmm. He didn't really have a defined role at the company. He had been working on this pinball game that Bally ultimately rejected. They never make a pinball game for Bally. Al's doing the video game stuff. Al's the one that's designed Pong and is going to move on and design their next couple of games as well. So they don't really need him to be an engineer. He's not any better equipped than Nolan to manage the company. He gets stuck as head of production facilities and gets kind of stuck organizing the manufacturing line. According to Al, not just according to Nolan, according to Al too, he's really kind of over his head running manufacturing. Parts come in, parts assembled, parts go out, kind of the flow of manufacturing. He's not very good on, and, and the manufacturing line is not doing very well, as we said. You know, Ted's not a manufacturing guy, so it, it's not really his fault. It's just that he's being sidelined into roles that he's probably not very good for, but he's not asserting himself. He's an equal partner in this company. If he wanted to assert himself, and well, actually, interestingly enough, I don't think he is an equal partner. I think it was a 60-40 split. Oh, really? But still, he's a nearly equal partner in the company. He still had a pretty significant voice. So he could assert himself if he wanted to, theoretically, but I don't think he does a very good job of asserting himself and trying to force himself into other areas. He's not involved in game design, he's not involved in management, and he's involved in manufacturing, which isn't very good for him. 
Plus, Nolan knows that he's going to have to bring in a professional management team now. And that means giving these people some stock in the company. Right now, all the stock is divided between Nolan and Ted and their wives. Their wives have stock, too, to fill out the board. So they're going to need to set aside some of that stock to give to a professional management team. And Nolan doesn't necessarily want to give up all of his stock. So there's also the fact that it's attractive to take back Ted's stake to have stock to give to other people. Mm -hmm. He starts forcing Ted out throughout 1973. He starts slowly phasing Ted out. I think in February, he stops being a partner. He gets bought out of his shares. He still remains a board member, though, for longer than that. But they're slowly phasing him out. So they come to this arrangement then in, I think, October 73. So he's no longer a partner as of February 73, but he's still an employee of the company. He's still working for the company. In October 1973, they come to a new agreement where he's basically pushed out of the company altogether. By now, Nolan has brought on his brother-in-law, John Wakefield, to be the president of the company, and they're starting to bring in professional managers from Hewlett-Packard and other places to fill out the executive slots. So Ted Dabney doesn't really have a role anymore. They brought in an accountant named Bill White to kind of run operations and keep manufacturing going. So Dabney's kind of redundant. So they kind of push him out. They make a deal where he is actually going to take that coin-op route that I mentioned before. And he's going to take the Syzygy name, which is still used by Atari on some of its products, take the coin-op route, and he's going to run the coin-op route And he's going to leave Atari, and Atari's going to give him a promissory note for his interest in the company that they'll make payments on to to slowly buy him out of all of that. So at this point, Dabney's entirely out of the company, and the coin-op route's out of the company, too, and the Syzygy name is out of the company. That lasts for a bit, but uh, Atari starts having some financial difficulty, and so they have some trouble making payment on the note. So they actually renegotiate. They give him a different note. They actually take Nolan personally buys back the coin op route in the Syzygy name because Dabney doesn't want anything to do with that. And they give him a new note to buy him out on things. And then Bushnell turns around and sold, sells the coin op route and the Syzygy name to Ted Olson, who is a comptroller at the company who's being forced out by the new VP of finance. And so this is kind of his consolation prize. It's like, I'm sorry we had to fire you, but here's this game route. He later becomes a major player in the arcade business when he founds the Time Zone arcade chain. Uh, So he kind of got his start in that business by buying the Syzygy game route. So that gets the games out. That gets the Syzygy name out entirely. Atari's kind of completely divorced from his roots now, and that gets rid of Ted entirely. Ted stays on the board until early 1974, but then he leaves the board too. So Ted is forced out in stages throughout 1973, and these professional managers, led by John Wakefield, come in. John Wakefield is a psychologist. He's done some business consulting, but he's not really a businessman. Nolan, I think, brought him in partially because he was family and partially because psychology of people seemed a logical thing to have on staff at a game company where you kind of have to figure out the psychology of people in order to create games that they'll like and market games to them, etc. John Wakefield and the people that come in under him don't really do a very good job with the company. There's a lot more compartmentalization of the company. These people don't have coin-op experience, so they don't really understand how to run a company. Atari hits some real snags during this period as a result. 
they're trying to move beyond Pong and it's not going well. Their second game, Space Race, which is just two players control rocket ships and they have to get them from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen while dodging asteroids, little pluses that represent asteroids. The graphics are very primitive. And each time you get to the top of the screen, you score a point, and then you go back to the bottom of the screen again. Each time you hit an asteroid, you go back to the bottom of the screen without scoring a point. So you're competing with another player to get to the top of the screen as many times as possible within a time limit. Most points wins. It's kind of blasé and doesn't do very well. The next game they do is a four-player version of Pong, which they're kind of forced into doing because their competitors are starting to do four-player versions of Pong, and their competitors are burying them in the Pong business. Then they do a maze game called Gotcha that also just doesn't really do that great. So they're struggling trying to come up with a new hit. They finally turn to a couple of other Ampex people. It's all these Ampex people named Steve Meyer and Larry Emmons, who have founded a consulting business in Grass Valley, California, which is very near the Nevada border, called Cyan Engineering. They were in Videophile. They fled Videophile because Videophile was falling apart. They're a couple of pretty accomplished engineers. So Nolan comes up with the idea of we'll have Steve and Larry come up with new game concepts in Grass Valley, and then they'll send the prototypes down to our engineering department here in Silicon Valley, and we'll put the final touches on it, turn the prototype into something manufacturable, and put it out. So they create this informal arrangement with Cyan. They ultimately buy Cyan in mid-1974, but right now it's just an informal arrangement where this basically becomes the advanced R&D for Atari. Larry Emmons comes up with a driving game that looks like a really good game called Grand Track 10, which is an overhead driving game. There's a kind of twisty-turny racetrack all fits on one screen. You navigate this racetrack to try to get good times within the time limit. At this point, Al Alcorn, who is a good coin-op engineer, is in the process of leaving the company temporarily because his mother's dying of cancer. Another Ampex engineer, all Ampex people, named Lloyd Warman, is brought in to replace him. Lloyd Warman is a very good administrator. He's very good at providing some order and organization to the engineering department. He doesn't understand coin-op at all. Optimizing things for coin-op is very difficult because you have to have parts that are durable enough to withstand the abuse that people are going to throw at them, but also cheap enough that you're not driving up the cost so much that your distributors can't afford to buy them. It's knowing which parts need to be metal, which ones you can get away with plastic, and put the glass somewhere that they're not going to bang on it. <laughs> right. Larry Emmons ends up over-engineering Grand Track because he's not familiar with coin-op either. He's just creating the best, most awesome game he can think of to make. But it's just a prototype, so that's fine. The problem is he's now passed it along to Lloyd Warman Another guy who doesn't understand coin-op, because Al Alcorn's gone now, Lloyd Warman doesn't catch the flaws in the game, the parts that just aren't suited for that environment or are too expensive for that environment, etc. Furthermore, the company has become so compartmentalized from this new management team, from big businesses and are used to having more organization and having more division between departments rather than a startup where everyone's wearing 20 different hats and everyone talks to each other all the time, that the accounting people and the engineering people are not communicating with, it, with each other really well, so they don't really fully understand how much the game costs. Their price lists aren't being put together very well. 
So Grand Track 10 ends up being over-engineered, it ends up being finicky and very faulty in the field, and it ends up initially costing more than they're selling it for to make it. That's not good. Then the absolute worst thing happens. Because of the piracy problem on Pong, because, I mean, some people crafted their own boards based on the gameplay, some people just plain ripped off the board, copied it part for part. They created this really complex sound chip that was going to be sole source to National Semiconductor that would be exclusive to them so other people couldn't purchase this part, and it would be such a complex chip that it would be almost impossible for anyone else to copy that chip either and make their own version. So this was going to be their way to stop Grand Track from being copied. Well, it turns out that it's so complex that National can't do it as a single chip. They have to turn it into three chips, which drives up the cost. Then they sense that Atari is a little shaky financially. Atari's always been shaky financially. They basically, in the Pong days, they were buying parts on credit, forcing distributors to give them cash up front for the machines, and then turning around their Pong machines just fast enough to get paid by the distributors to turn around and pay their suppliers. They are bootstrapping like crazy. They are doing the business equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. They really are. So Pong sales are starting to go down in early 1974. They're not getting as much out of Pong and Pong variants. They've tried expanding overseas and have done a truly disastrous expansion into Japan where they tried to set up a subsidiary to bring games into the Japanese market. They managed to alienate all the distributors so no one will take their product, and they had no idea how to get through Japanese customs. So they were having stuff sitting in customs that they couldn't get onto the market, and then even when they got it out of customs, they had a hard time getting distributors to distribute it. I think we covered some of that in the Atari brand. It Namco. Was, uh, the Namco one, yeah. It was a nightmare. Exactly. From what we were talking about before. You got these guys coming in from Atari like, we are big American businessmen. We're going to, uh, you don't want to work with us? Fine. We'll just do it on our own. They have no concept of how Japan works, where they really want to go after whoever the winner is. They're very collectivist and go, whoever's the big leader, that's the one they go after. That's why Nintendo is so big there. That's why Dragon Quest is so big there. Exactly. That's why the Xbox has hundreds of consoles just sitting on the shelf. <laughs> that's right. Japan is not going well. Pong sales and Pong, and Pong derivative sales are falling off. National kind of gets wind of this, and they start to worry that Atari won't be able to pay its bills. So they demand cash up front for their three-chip thing that they're putting into Grand Track. Atari has to get their parts on credit. They don't have enough cash on hand to give cash up front for their parts. And this is a unique chip that's sole source to National. They can't go to another company to get a better deal. Mm -hmm. National cuts them off. So they have to halt production on Grand Track entirely. They had been planning to put Grand Track out in March. They don't actually start shipping in quantity until May because of these issues. They bring Al Alcorn back to redesign Grand Track and fix all of these problems. But in the meantime, they don't have a big product on the line right when they need a big product. That combined with the problems with the overseas expansions means that for the 1974 fiscal year, which in June 1st, they lose $600,000. So really, it's more like they had this great rise with Pong, and 
they peaked and then they're crashing hard. They are. Banks will not lend them money. It's a volatile business and the banks are not convinced that they'll get their money back either, just like National wasn't convinced they'll get paid. Banks will not lend them money. They have no other sources of income. They don't have their hit game is stuck. It's stopped. What they hope will be their hit game. They are on the verge of death. This could have very well been the end of Atari. It could have just been a flash in the pan over before it even began. Much like some other companies we have covered before. Absolutely. But they are saved by their own secret subsidiary that they set up themselves called Key Games. And that is where we will pick up the story in our next episode on Atari. Alrighty. Key Game. I don't think we've covered that one yet. I don't think so. There's something to look forward to. Isn't that right, dear listeners? <laughs> well, anyway, we will see you next time after Atari's birthday. Play your Atari. <laughs> on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.